So once again, as we get started, for those who may be new with us today or haven't been with us in a month, uh, we are in a pre-summer series. Next week is our last week in the series called Flourish, talking about sexuality, gender, and the way of Jesus. So again, a slight content warning for those who have kids in the room or teens in the room. Uh, we're covering topics of sexuality and gender in frank and candid terms. Uh, so all are welcome to stay and engage. Uh, just being mindful of that if you need to. We do have kids ministry downstairs. Also, got a book table here. If you want to look at some resources, snap some pictures, do some, get some links. Um, I'll have some more on my slides next week if you have for websites and podcasts and other things too. But if you want to take a look at some books that have been helpful to me, they're over there. Um, yeah, please check those out. Also, if we can put this up to the next slide. Um, so this is a QR code that takes you to a website that allows you to type in some questions. So um, you, not only can you type in some questions around this topic, but you can also read other people's questions and then upvote the ones that you really want answered. And so I did take a couple of the questions that were on there from last week into what we're talking about today. I'll do even more so next week as we bring the series to a close. So feel free uh, to uh, go on the, so you either can go on the website and type in the number or you can click on the, or take a picture of the, the, the QR code and it'll take you there. So yeah, feel free to, to, to do that. Um, obviously we can't cover everything, uh, but would love to make sure that the, the things we are talking about are as helpful to, to the things that you're wrestling through and, and have questions about. All right, with that, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. If you have a Bible, open up to it. If not, it's here on the screen. Paul writes, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So today I want to talk to you about the scriptures, the Bible, and the LGBTQ community. So I'm going to start with um, putting my cards on the table as we start today. Speaking candidly, there are around six reasons why I don't want to preach this sermon today. <laughs> so I'll start with why I don't want to preach this sermon, and then I'll preach the sermon. Reason number one is I imagine there may be some guests in the room or people in the room who haven't been a part of what we've done the last four weeks. And so I realize that context is usually helpful. So to drop in on sermon number five in a series um, sometimes can not be the most helpful. And so again, just want to remind you there are four other sermons that have come first before here. Number two, I've tried in some ways over the past few weeks to name and call out the fact that as Christians in the church, we have often had a tiered or hierarchical approach to sin, where we put some sins up here on the really bad scale, and others we ignore altogether. And so by talking specifically about this today, I don't want people to confuse that I'm just trying to make this the only issue we talk about, but to be mindful of the fact that... that uh, Every single person 
is called to bring their full selves to the cross of Christ. And so this is not just a a sermon aiming at certain people, but again, a reminder for us all that we all need the transforming work of Jesus. Every human identity is invited to submit to the cross of Christ. Everyone. Reason number three is by personality and bent, I don't like conflict. And I have attempted in my own unhealth to be a people pleaser. And so I'm going to lay my people pleasing and my conflict avoidance at the foot of Jesus today. Reason number four is it's overwhelming to try and condense some of these topics into a 35, 40 minute sermon. And so there are things that maybe we could talk about that we won't talk about today. Also, today especially, uh, is very unoriginal, <clears throat> meaning I, I don't know if much of what I'm going to share with you is like my content. Uh, I've just read a lot, grabbed a lot, and kind of tried to cull it together and put it together, so I'm not trying to pretend to be original, but hopefully what lacks in originality will make up for in practicality or help. So a tip of the hat to... Kevin DeYoung, Preston Sprinkle, John Tyson, Rosaria Butterfield, and many, many other thinkers that I've read in putting this together. And then last, but definitely not least, man, whenever we talk about this subject, God again stirs my heart for the people of the LGBTQ community. Not abstract themes, not an abstract culture war, but people. My nephew, my cousin-in-law, my kids' friends. I'm reminded again of God's great love for all of us. Many have been hurt, alienated, and suffered wrong in the name of Jesus. And I'm aware of this thing called church trauma and my heart is to not contribute to other people's church trauma. And yet I still have theological convictions too. So, after telling you why I'm not gonna, or don't wanna preach the sermon, I'm gonna go ahead and preach the sermon. So as I read from 2 Timothy, I, I believe that all of scripture is God-breathed, inspired, profitable, for all sorts of things, teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. The idea is that the the man and woman of God would be complete, equipped for the things that God has for us here on planet Earth. And so the, the scriptures, I believe, are a gift to us. And yes, they need to be interpreted, and yes, they need to be applied. And yes, people have done things in the name of the scriptures that have been really hurtful to many throughout the years but I still believe the scriptures has something to say to us as reality church today. So let's keep rolling here with two statements. At reality church, everyone is invited to follow in the way of Jesus. Hopefully you hear that, you sense that, you pick that up in the ethos of our community. Like everyone, everyone's invited to follow in the way of Jesus. Okay, who you are, where you come from, what's your background, what's your baggage, what you, what, no matter whatever else, anything. Everyone's involved. Let's follow Jesus. Let's follow Jesus. That's the invitation that Jesus made to his disciples. Follow me. 
And in our pursuit of following Jesus at Reality Church, we believe that Jesus in the scriptures stood with Moses and the Torah to define all sexual expression outside of marriage between a man and a woman as sin. Now what's interesting is, is that statement 50 years ago would not have been very controversial in a church. And that statement 30 years ago wouldn't need much introduction. That statement in 2023 is often met with questions, suspicion, and skepticism. Really? That feels really fill in the blank. So, if you were to ask me, why do I believe this to be true? I would say, because I believe it's what the Bible teaches. And yet there are a growing number of voices today who would say, no, it doesn't. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. So there are churches today that will call themselves, to use the label of affirming, an affirming church. Meaning that the Bible, when properly interpreted, doesn't define sexual sin this way as sin. And it declares that the sexual expression of the LGBTQ community as being affirmed, welcomed, good, beautiful, and based on the Bible. So all that to say, I just want to highlight the tension, is that there are Christians, there are people, there are churches that look at this differently. And some who would read the Bible differently. So the question isn't just, do you believe the Bible anymore? That used to be the question 50 years ago. Do you believe the Bible or not? Yeah, okay, yes, this, I, okay, my conclusions are here, no, over here. So the question isn't just, do you believe the Bible? The question is, what do you believe that the Bible actually teaches, says, affirms, and addresses? Why would we as a church teach, disciple, and lead from the historic Christian sexual ethic in view of marriage? What does Jesus and the whole teaching of Scripture actually speak about homosexuality and the LGBTQ community? So instead of just talking about talking about it, I just want to walk through some passages in the Bible today and ask four questions so we can actually maybe look for ourselves, maybe anticipate some of the discussion and debate. Do you, know, do you know how many times homosexuality is mentioned explicitly in the scriptures? Anyone have a guess? Three, Three four? Five. Five? <laughs> do I hear six? Do I hear seven? <laughs> One dollar. One dollar, Bob. One dollar. So it's actually named explicitly six times in the scriptures. Yeah. <laughs> We stopped, we stopped it short, didn't we? And, and that answer actually may be surprising to some how many there are, and some may be surprised how few there are. And I will say, just to compare, that there are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that talk about money and possessions. And in Jesus' teaching in his parables, 11 of his 40 parables were about money. And we don't like to talk about that either. So six passages that directly speak to homosexuality. Um, the first ones show up early in the Bible in the Old Testament. So here's the first question of the four questions we're going to ask today. First question, the Old Testament? 
right? Why would we use any verse from the Old Testament to guide our views on marriage and sexuality? Or, if you want to get really technical on this question, I think I have another version of it. Isn't Leviticus in the Old Testament? Aren't Old Testament laws no longer binding? Or, why do Christians selectively pick this prohibition from Leviticus to enforce when we break other commandments, like we eat pork, any bacon lovers in the room? That's forbidden in Leviticus 11.7. We trim our beards, if you can grow one. (laughs) We wear clothes with mixed materials. Cotton polyester blends are forbidden in Leviticus 19. So, like, so why would we, we, we choose some ones, we're like, yep, I'm, I'm fine breaking that one from Leviticus, but why would we enforce anything else from Leviticus as well? That would lead some to say, well, we don't need to follow any of the ones from Leviticus. Now again, so here are the, here are the two passages from Leviticus. Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20.13, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. Leviticus 20.13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Again, the verses themselves, the syntax, the topic is not necessarily complex. It's pretty straightforward that in Levitical law, there are certain sexual practices that God condemns and forbids, lying with a male as with a woman. But again, the the deeper question underneath the question isn't just like, what does the verse say? The questions that are wrestling with today in the modern day um, are around all of these things of why do we pick certain laws or prohibitions and not others? So again, I'm going to do my real quick three-minute Leviticus overview, but especially in Leviticus 18 through 20 where these verses are found, the big idea of the book of Leviticus is the word holy or holiness. Leviticus is all about holiness. Leviticus is the A to Z about holiness for the people of Israel and the people of God. So as God's people entered into a new land, into the promised land, God was calling them as a people to live different, set-apart, holy lives from the people and the culture that they were entering into. He wanted them to be different and distinct and holy. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, I'm not sure if I put, yeah, I did put this in here. He says the whole system of Israel's worship assumed the holiness of God as its starting place. So you have holy people, the priests, with holy clothes in a holy land at a holy place using holy utensils and holy objects, celebrating holy days, living by a holy law that they might be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Holy, 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 holy cow. Lots of holy. But that's the framework of Leviticus is God is trying to get his people to look and live and be distinctly different according to his way than the culture that they were moving into. And then especially, uh, especially the second half of Leviticus, chapter 17 and onward, is known as the holiness code. Chapter 18, it has to do with holiness and sexuality. And the statements there are upholding an idea that is given in Genesis 1 and 2. So like, is this still, is there anything from Leviticus still applicable today? I would say yes, there is. There's actually a lot in Leviticus that we still apply today and hold to today. Jesus actually quotes from Leviticus when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. 
When someone asks him what's the greatest commandment, he says the first one is to love God with all that you are. The second is to love your neighbor as yourself. That comes from Leviticus. So Jesus actually quotes from Leviticus and, and, and views it as binding on his followers. The New Testament quotes Leviticus 10 times. Peter quotes it. Paul quotes it. In fact, there's a lot in Leviticus that we still view as being prohibited. I won't spend a ton of time on the list, but incest, adultery, child sacrifice, bestiality, theft, lying, oppressing your neighbor, taking the Lord's name in vain, cursing the deaf, showing partiality in the court of law, slander, hating your brother, making your daughter a prostitute, turning to witches or necromancers, and then again, this thing that Jesus gave when answering about the great commandment. So there are, there are still many things that we do. There are some things that we don't do. There are many things that we do still operate under. So the question is, well, how do you know the difference between those to agree to and those that aren't to be followed? You can go to the next slide. And maybe it's helpful to begin to understand that within the law code of Israel, there are different kinds of laws. There are ceremonial laws that govern Jewish sacrificial practice in the tabernacle and the temple. And as those that live this side of the cross, the tabernacle temple laws are no longer binding on God's people. And then there are civil laws that govern Israel as a theocratic nation. And we're Americans that live in, under a different constitutional law. But then there are other laws, the moral law that would stand for all people in all times and all cultures. So again, I would say the best way to, to figure out, again, other than these categories, the best and most surest way to figure out is this a law that still needs to be followed is does it get repeated again in the New Testament on this side of the cross? And if it doesn't, you can use some other discernment figuring out the categories, but if it does, I would say pay attention to it. What is being quoted and used again in the new covenant? Well, some would still ask, again, that's the Old Testament. We don't do that anymore. You could, if you wanted to, I mean, in theory, throw out then Leviticus. There are still many other usages in the New Testament that's talked about as well. So let's talk about some of those. Romans chapter 1, 24, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. So we actually, I think one of my earlier sermons in this series was 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. So I'm not going to read that one. Let's go ahead and go to the Romans 1 first. Here's Paul writing in, in Romans 1. It says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women. Women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So again, just uh, I, whenever you drop into a Bible passage like Leviticus or Romans, it's helpful to know context. And as you begin to 
letter of Romans, just to realize Paul is writing this as a letter to the church in the city of ancient Rome, and he's writing to a church community, and he's, he's really building an argument in his theological thought. In Romans 1 through 3, he's establishing the fact that the Gentiles, those who are non-Jews, were standing in sin, guilty, before God. Before he gets to the good news of Jesus and his atoning death on the cross, he spends some time establishing the fact that all have sinned. Chapter one, he paints this picture. He quotes and draws from Genesis again. How humanity has made this great exchange. And we've exchanged truth for a lie. And rather than worshiping creator God as who he is, we instead have worshiped created things. So context-wise, that's where this, this passage shows up. Paul's giving a critique of exchanged truth for lieness for lack of a better phrase, places and areas where we've exchanged truth for a lie, creatures for creator, or I would say here, exchanged sexuality as well, instead of men with women, men with men. So here's, here's the second question then. Aren't these things, like Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, Timothy Aren't the acts that are condemned in the New Testament different from loving monogamous same-sex unions of today? Or, if you want to be real pointed with the question, Paul would not have known about committed monogamous same-sex love. His words are only condemning domination, victimization, exploitation by older men, slavery, victims of war. He's giving a critique of power dynamics, heterosexual men who have burned with lust, whose appetites were out of control and were going outside of their normal sexual expression in a lust-fueled desire for sexual exploitation or exploration. In a nutshell, this is saying, okay, Maybe not Leviticus, maybe not Old Testament. Okay, now we're now in the New Testament. It's being repeated again, but this is different. And I will say, obviously, there are many who read Romans 1 or other things and say, hey, that's not what I'm advocating for. But to say that Paul did not know or wouldn't have known about committed monogamous same-sex love in the ancient world, therefore, what he is saying here is critiquing something else and it doesn't apply. I don't think that is true if you just read History, historically. First of all, there's nothing in the text to say that Paul is talking about victimization or those power dynamics at play. The Greek language has vocabulary for that. I know you wanted to know, so I'll put a slide together for you here. There are phrases that mean love of boys, corrupter of boys, seducer of boys. Uh, There are phrases used to describe the older man, boy, and that existed in the ancient world, believe me. That is condemned, but that is not just what's in target here by Paul's words. He had a vocabulary to use if he wanted to use it, but he didn't use these words in describing what he's saying here in Romans 1. So Paul did have a wider vocabulary at his disposal, but that's not what he's, those aren't the words he's using to describe it here. 
And then I would again just say, outside of the Bible, outside of Scripture, there are non-biblical, non-Christian historians that would say, actually, there were same-sex monogamous relationships happening in the ancient Greco-Roman world. So um, I think I have a slide of some of these people. Again, if you want to look up and read them, there's some affirming scholars, Bernadette, Bruton, Bill Loader, um, Roman, Roman Homosexuality by C.A. Williams, C.J. or K.J. Dover's Greek Sexuality. Non-Christian, even some affirming scholars that would agree that there were cultural examples of same-sex monogamous relationships in the ancient world. Plutarch, first, second century, he wrote this dialogue on love in that he makes a distinction between homosexual love that was merely for pleasure and love that was, in his words, true love. Plato's Symposium mentions that there were two lovers ten years beyond adulthood, not just an older man, younger boy kind of thing. And then you have this uh, Agathon, a Greek poet. He was known for having a lifelong relationship with a man named Prasinius. A couple more scholars here. N.T. Wright, and he's a Christian. He says, as a classicist, I have to say that when I read Plato's Symposium or when I read accounts from the early Roman Empire of the practice of homosexuality, that it seems to me that they knew just as much about it as we do. In particular, a point which is often misused, they knew a great deal about what people would regard as a longer-term, reasonably stable relations between two people of the same gender. This is not a modern invention. It's already there in Plato. The idea that in Paul's day it was always a matter of exploitation of younger men, younger men by older men or whatever, of course there was plenty of that then as there is today, but it was by no means the only thing. They knew about the whole range of options there. I think we have been conned by Foucault into thinking this is a new phenomenon. Another, again, this is homosexuality and civilization, Lewis Crompton. According to one interpretation, Paul's words were not directed at bona fide homosexuals and committed relationships, but such a reading, however well-intentioned, seems strained and unhistorical. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstance. The idea that homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any other Jew or early Christian. Lewis Crompton is a self-identified great gay man, a brilliant scholar. scholar. His work is 500 pages. I would say that out of all the objections to this idea of Paul not knowing or not having examples of that in the ancient world, I think that's probably the weakest argument. As Paul is writing here in Romans 1, he's using mutual language of one another. All right, question number three. Well, okay, let's talk about Jesus then. What about Jesus? Jesus never explicitly mentions or condemns homosexuality, so shouldn't we follow his loving lead? Okay, whatever about Leviticus, holiness code, not sure how all that works. Paul in the New Testament, let's talk Jesus. Some would say Jesus doesn't talk about homosexuality. Jesus doesn't condemn homosexuality. And you're right, Jesus doesn't speak about homosexuality. And again, as I've read many talking about that, the reason why Jesus often doesn't talk about homosexuality is because Jesus was a first century Jew. In his context, that was a given. 
Torah-observant Jews, this was not a raging cultural debate within the synagogue. And so Jesus does not talk about it a ton at all. So it was not a debate in his world. But when Jesus does define uh, a phrase, sexual immorality, he uses the Greek word porneia. It's the word that we get pornography from, porneia. And again, many people believe that word porneia, uh, if, you could, if you had a hyperlink Bible and clicked on it, that Jesus, when he uses the word porneia for sexual morality, that that hyperlink would take you back to Leviticus chapter 18 in the sexual code of Leviticus. Jesus, as he comes and teaches, Sermon on the Mount, other places in the Gospels, he consistently upholds Moses and the Torah. He consistently defines marriage as a man and a woman. He consistently points back to in the beginning of male, female. And anything outside of that is being a deviation from God's good creation design. Well, what about love, right? We're called to love. And I would emphasize that we are called to love. And I'll talk more about love next week. Love should be the defining feature of our ethic. But I'll quote Preston Sprinkle, again, someone who's written a ton. If you want to look up someone's website, the the Center for Faith and Sexuality, he has done a ton of work, lots of articles, great resources, videos. He says that the line of thinking, that line of thinking, well, what about love? It rightly prioritizes love, but it wrongly defines it. Love should be the priority, but what is love? Jesus tells us to love one another as I have loved you. Who defines love? Jesus gets to define love, because God is love. John 15, 12. The last part, as I have loved you. Often we have turned love into a warm, fuzzy emotion or a passionate desire. And at times that is love. But Christian love looks different. Worldly love says, if you love me, then you will affirm everything that I think, feel, or act, or do. But when Jesus loved people, he always loved them toward God and toward holiness, as revealed in Scripture. So our ethics must not be reduced down to do whatever you do as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Because again, how do you define hurting someone? All sin at its core is a movement away from God. And there's hurt involved in that for everyone. Question number four. Are people born gay? If so, why would you prohibit something that they have absolutely no choice about? So I'm just going to read a couple things from this. Again, this is not scripture. This is the American Psychological Association. Next slide. The American Psychological, the APA, American Psychological Association, says there's no consensus among scientists about the exact reasons that an individual develops a heterosexual, bisexual, gay, or lesbian orientation. Although much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, developmental, social, and cultural uh, 
on sexual orientation, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. Many think that nature and nurture both play complex roles. Most people experience little to no sense of choice about their sexual orientation. It's like, well, how does it happen? They're saying it's complex. It's a mixture of nature and nurture. Another quote from the APA, the causes of sexual orientation, whether homosexual or heterosexual, are not known at this time and likely are multifactorial, including biological and behavioral roots, which may vary between different individuals and may even vary over time. So again, I I would echo that. I think it's complex. I think there's some biological things that may be at play, but there are also some behavioral things at play. It's both nature and nurture. And I would agree that most people, most humans don't have a sense of choice about their orientation. I don't think heterosexuals think and research deeply to be heterosexual. I think most people have low awareness of their choice. But then again, I'll quote Justin Lee in his book. He says, just because an attraction or a drive is biological doesn't mean it's okay to act on. We all have inborn tendencies to sin in any number of ways. If gay people's same-sex attractions were inborn, that wouldn't necessarily mean that it's okay to act on them. And if we all agreed that gay sex is sinful, that wouldn't necessarily mean that same-sex attractions aren't inborn. Isn't it a sin, and does it... Does it have biological roots are two completely separate questions. So if science comes out in 5, 10, 30, 50 years with the quote gay gene and says, of course, this is why a person becomes gay or lesbian or bisexual. Even if it's proven that it's a biological root, I still don't think it makes it necessarily good, right, and holy. I think there are ways in which we biologically have predisposition to certain things. And yet we're still called to follow in the way of Jesus. Rosaria Butterfield, original sin means that we are born in fallenness, both moral, which requires the sanctifying power of God through saving faith, and natural, which requires medical or supernatural healing, but not necessarily saving or sanctifying faith. Sexuality can straddle this line as sometimes sexual dysfunction results from natural fallenness, such as intersexuality, being born with reproductive or sexual anatomy of both sexes. So sometimes that happens from natural fallenness in our world. So yes, we are all born this way. And even after we are born again, we, all, we will all struggle with sin until we die and enter glory or Jesus returns. I highlight that one just to say I hear a lot of Christians wanting to argue about how a person comes to their sexual orientation. Are they born with it or not? I just don't know if that debate is helpful. I don't know if it ultimately matters. It's nuanced, it's loaded, and I believe we should engage people with the utmost compassion, empathy, humility, and kindness. Realizing it is complex. So bonus question. 
That should say if. If someone who holds a different position, oh, no, I guess it is. Is someone who holds a different position welcome at reality? Is someone who disagrees in practice welcome at reality? And I just hope you know the short answer for that is yes. If we're not checking minds at the door, we're not checking sexual orientations at the door, again, all are welcome to come and follow the way of Jesus. A lot of this comes back to, go to the next slide. What you believe around believing, behaving, and belonging. In some cultures and contexts, you need to believe a certain thing and behave a certain way before you can belong. I just don't see that as the way of Jesus. When I watched Jesus operate, he didn't say, okay, you got to believe a certain thing, behave a certain way, and then you can come be with me. In fact, I think the paradigm of Jesus is the opposite where he says, I want you to belong. Come be with me. That's what he did to his disciples. Come follow me, be with me, walk with me, talk with me, hang with me, be with me. He invites people to belong as he works on their beliefs. And as their beliefs get shaped and changed, he also then sees that their behavior begins to change as well. I just point that out that oftentimes we're trying to say, for you to belong to our club, you have to behave a certain way and believe a certain thing. I don't think that's the way the church is called to operate. Wide invitation to all. And every identity and every person is called to submit themselves fully to the cross of Jesus. I will say this, that the church has failed the gay community to be loved and welcomed. And as we follow the way of Jesus, I think we need to be more Jesus-y. What does that mean? Luke 7.34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So he answered this question, was Jesus holy? Right? Can we all agree that? Jesus was holy. Jesus is the Son of God. He's just holy. Did Jesus hold a high sexual personal ethic? Yes. We read the Sermon on the Mount. However, here's where we often miss it. Jesus did not lead with policies. He led with proximity. Jesus, the Holy One, was so committed to the holiness of God that he entered into the places of sin, brokenness, so much so that Jesus got a reputation. And this is his reputation. Oh yeah, Jesus, he's a glutton. Jesus, the drunkard. Jesus, the friend of tax collectors and sinner. Jesus lived close enough to people to get a reputation for it. And again, I think, honestly, sometimes in the church, we love our reputations more than we love people. And we care more about what people will think about us more than caring about people themselves. So I want our church to get a reputation like Jesus that leads not just with policies, but with proximity. So we're not afraid for our holiness to get compromised 
we're willing to love people, seek people, be with people. A couple things and I'll be done. Sam Alberry says, our testimony is not, I was a mess, then Jesus showed up, and now I've got everything together. Right? That's not our testimony. But I was a mess, I still am, but I'm a mess who belongs to Jesus, a mess he is committed to sorting out, and he came to me, he has stuck with me, and continues to be my all in all. So regardless of your issue, sexual issues, money issues that Jesus talks about, materialism, pride, greed. This is our testimony. May we be willing to lead with that kind of way. Fascinating survey they did in 2016, and I really seriously will be done. 2016, they did a survey of the LGBTQ community. Again, obviously a sample of it. They asked, how many of you were brought up attending church? 84% of those surveyed in this survey. 84%. How many left church when they turned 18? 54%. How many left because of the church's traditional theology on marriage? 15%. Next slide. How many expect the church to embrace LGBTQ affirming theology for for us to return? 8%. That's a lot lower than I think many would presume. And what it highlights to me is that the issue isn't just our theology and our doctrine, but our relational mistreatment of people. It's not just what we believe, but how we hold what we believe. May we be willing to follow Jesus and let him call out what he needs to call out as we submit ourselves again to the foot of the cross. But may we do so in love. I pray. Jesus, I thank you for your your word. I thank you for the scriptures. And Lord, we admit in this there is a lot of complexity and some personal discomfort in trying to figure out how we follow you well. But we thank you for your great grace. We thank you for your redeeming love. And we pray that you'll continue to make us a community that loves and follows like you do. So for all the places in our life that are out of alignment with your way, we say, have your way, Lord Jesus. And we thank you for your life and your death and your resurrection and your ascension and the giving of your spirit. So Lord, may you continue to do your work in us. And we pray, Lord, for our relationships with others, specifically today in the LGBTQ community. May we learn to love like you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.